Recording in progress. Thank you all so much for joining me today. Before I begin, I need to pray. Father God, we just come boldly before your throne of grace. We thank you so much for being full-time in our life. God, we ask that you just please allow us to retain your word today and let it stay hidden in our hearts. Let us apply what we need to apply to our lives so that we can live um, so that we can live a life that is able to fulfill your plan, will, and purpose, that we are able to walk according to what your plan, will, and purpose is for our lives, God. But the most important thing, God, let us be able to be obedient and pleasing to you. That is something that we desire to do, God. So right now, I ask that you just fill me with your Holy Spirit. Allow me to be led by the Holy Spirit in this conversation. God, I just thank you so much for everything that you've done, everything that you're going to do and everything that you have done for us that we don't even know that you have done for us, God. So thank you so much, Holy Spirit, for filling me up. I just thank you for just leading me in this discussion, allow me to discuss everything that I need to so that it's edifying to the hearer and let me get my testimony the way that I'm supposed to so that it's retained. And Father God, I just thank you right now that I can plant seeds and water seeds as necessary. But most importantly, God, please allow your will to be done. Not my will, not anyone else's will, but your will. In the name of Jesus Christ, it is still in your blood. Amen. Thank you all so much for joining me on Laws, Life, and Health. Let's talk about it. So today I am continuing on in the discussion of women's health. This is a very trending topic, Okay. Um, so yesterday I was able to talk a lot about, um, I talked about Jonah and, um, him being caught in the well and how he tried to run from God. And sometimes, you know, you, you might be going through a lot of situations in your life where you feel like you can run away from your problem, but the problem is still going to be there no matter what. So it's important to take God with you on your journey. And yes, that's something that is very easy to say. But when you're making big decisions, decisions to transform your life or some major things that's happening in your life, you want to make sure that you are including God on your journey, including him in your choices and in your decisions. And so um, today I just want to get right into the word. So let me go ahead and share my screen. And um, if you have any questions, please go ahead and put them right here in the Q&A and I will be able to respond to them there. If you are on any of the audio um, platforms like the iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple, or Amazon, Samsung, any of those type of apps, please go ahead and put a comment in the uh, comment section. I'll respond to you there. Okay, so today I wanted to talk about a few things that we're going to cover. I would like to get into 
talking about Planned Parenthood, hopefully really soon. Um, I would like to talk about Margaret Sanger and the Negro Pro Project. Um, specifically, I like to talk more about uh, eugenics and how it is impacting uh, like some Holocaust victims, including the Hispanic community, African-American community, and how the transgender population is um, actually playing a key role in uh, eugenics. Okay. And so um, before I get into all of that, I wanted to share a scripture today. Um, so this scripture that I want to share is um, Jeremiah chapter 8, verses 4 through 13. But before I get there, let's see. Hold on, I'm just looking for. Okay, so let's look at Jeremiah 8, 4 through 13. And then I'm going to go to um, the other scripture that I would like to share. This is going to be Songs of Songs. This is going to be... Um, Uh, Songs of Psalms 2 and 7. Okay. Okay. And then there are a few other scriptures that I like to share. One second, put this on the other side. Okay, so this scripture here is going to be this one I did not mean to do that. One second, you all. Thank you for your patience. Okay. Okay, so let's go to these Bible verses. It should be Jeremiah 8, verses 4 through 13. Okay, so it says, Say to them, this is what the Lord says. When people fall down, do they not get up? When someone turns away, do they not return? Why then have these people turned away? They cling to deceit. They refuse to return. I have listened attentively, but they do not say what is right. So what this is saying is, look, people are, you're going to fall down. 
So God does know that you are going to fall. But it says when people fall down, do they do they not get up? Because this is what the Lord is saying. This to say to them, this is what the Lord says. This is about sin and punishment. So when people fall down, they do get back up. When someone turns away, they do. They, do they not return? And many times they are going to return. When you go through a situation, it's like the situation that you're experiencing, it didn't go away. Right? So just because you had a problem at work doesn't mean that you're not going to go back to work. Right? Um, the problem is, is that if your job is causing a lot of type of uh, mental health concerns for you, like it's stressing you out to the point where you're depressed, like you don't even want to return to work. Then when someone turns away, they're not going to return. But if you having problems at your job, when someone turns away, do they not return? You know that you are going to return. So that is something that is important to consider. When, when then have these people turned away? Why does Jerusalem always turn away? They cling to deceit. So it's like, just like you would return back to your job in the same way, when something happens in your life, you're going to want to return back to God. When you have a problem, you're going to cry out to God. It's like, okay, now um, you having this, this situation and you can't pay your bills. And it's like, okay, God, I need you now. You know, um, so God, why does Jerusalem always turn away? They cling to deceit. So like people are out here and they are going to be clinging to deceit. And they re refuse to turn, return to God. And so let's listen to, uh, look at verse six. I have listened attentively, but they do not say what is right. None of them repent of their wickedness saying, what have I done? Each pursues their own course like a horse charging into battle. Even the shark in the sky knows her appointed seasons. And the dove, the swift and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the requirements of the Lord. How can you say we are wise for we have the law of the Lord when actually the lying pen of the scribes has handed it falsely? The wise will, the wise will be put to shame. They will be dismayed and trapped since they have rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do they have? Therefore, I will give their wives to other men and their fields to new owners. From the least to the greatest are all greedy for gain, prophets and priests alike. All practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the falling. They will be brought down when they are punished, says the Lord. I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. And so that goes up into 13. And so, uh, so just looking at this, the, the main reason why I wanted to read this is because it talks about falling down and, re and getting back up. And so when you fall, it might feel like you're not going to get back up, but you are going to get back up. 
And so all, although this scripture is talking about sin and punishment, um, let's look at some more scriptures where God is talking about, you know, um, So let's let's look at these other scriptures. Let's look at um Isaiah 52. That's what we're gonna go to. Isaiah 52. So awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments. O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you shake yourself from the dust arise sit down O jerusalem lose yourself from the bonds of your neck O captive daughter of zion for thus says the lord you have sold yourselves for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money for thus says the lord god my people went down and first into egypt to dwell there then the assyrian oppressed them without cause now therefore what have i here says the lord that my people are taken away for nothing. Those who rule over them, make them well, says the Lord. And my name is blasphemed uh, continually every day. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. So, um, going down here, um, it talks about depart and go out from there. 11 touch no unclean thing go out from the midst of her be clean so um god is basically redeeming um god redeems jerusalem in isaiah 52 when he talks about it here uh in verse 12 for you shall not go out with haste nor go by flight for the lord will go before you and the god of israel will be your rear guard so god is basically going before them and god is going on the rear Okay, and so it's like even when you're going through problems and you're going through all of these things, it is kind of hard and difficult for you to, you know, stay the course. But just understand that, yes, even when you fall and when you sin, you know, you you are going to get back up. Okay, you know, when you turn away, you are going to eventually return. So, yes, all have fallen short of the glory of God, but understand that God loves us so much that he redeems us. And when he does redeem us, once we get up, you know, and, and call upon the name of the Lord, as it says in, in Jeremiah 8, when people fall down, they do they not get up. So it's like when you fall down, you get up and you call on the name of the Lord. So when you turn away, and then you return again, calling upon the name of the Lord. You know, God is going to be there with you. As you see right here in Isaiah 52 and verse 12, where it talks about the Lord going before you and the God of Israel will go, will be your rear guard. So God will go ahead of us and God will go in our rear. God also goes with us on our journey. And so this is something that is really important to pay attention to. God really loves us and he wants you to know that no matter what you go through, no matter what you endure, that he's going to go before you and he's going to go with you and he will be your rear guard no matter where, no matter where you are. And so, yes, you will fall, but if you fall, you you're going to get back up. If you turn away, you are going to return because what's in you 
is going to come out of you. So if God is in you, you return to God. You're going to cry out to God. You're going to seek God. And God is going to hear your prayers and he's going to answer you. And so that's something that important to pay attention to. No matter what we see going on into society, no matter what cultural norms are being absorbed by those around you, make sure it doesn't impact you in a way where you forget who your redeemer is. So God is your redeemer. God is the one who will lift you up. God is the one who's going to go before you. God is the one who's going to go with you and he's going to be your rear guard. Same way he did it for the people in Jerusalem. So I wanted to uh, share some things today. Okay. Um, so let's go to Song of Songs and two, chapter 2 verse 7. And it says here, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. So it's like, when you think about the daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles. So like God is like gazelle. Um, let's, let's look at the King James version on this. So I'm look at the King James Version. It says, I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up, nor wake my love till he please. So let's look at rose. Um, I want to go to the Strong's Concordance. I'm going to, um, so the Strong's Concordance is basically like the English interpretation of the holy bible the so the holy bible has two different testaments the old testament which is written in hebrew scrolls and the new testament which is written in greek um so the old testament is uh from the book of genesis to the book of malachi uh but the first five books of the bible um it is genesis exodus leviticus numbers deuteronomy those are considered the torah and the torah is considered the law and so when you look at the New Testament, which is from the book of Matthew on to the book of Revelation, you see the books of uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so those are considered the Gospels. Um, and so what that talks about is the life of Jesus and when he was here, what he did. Okay, so um, the Bible has a lot of archaeology. It has a lot of artifacts. It has some philosophy in it. It has some poetry it has all sorts of things. It has laws. It has, um, you know, just God is our comforter. So the Bible is inspired by God. Okay. It's God's authoritarian, authoritarian word. And so if we wanted to understand the Bible in according to the English translation of Hebrew and also of Greek, you have to look in the Strong's Concordance. Now, there are several different types of concordances that you can use. However, all of them have the same uh, number, lexicon number, and it identifies that word. So, for instance, if you're going to look at the Hebrew translation 
or the Greek translation, you're going to look in the Strong's and you, you can type in the word rose. But you have to look at it from the King James Version if you're going to look at the Strong's Concordance.org. And so you have to type in that word. It'll give you each instance when that word was written, either in Hebrew or in Greek. And so the word rose was written in um, the Bible five different times. And so, for instance, let me type in the word Christian. And I do this all the time because I just want to make, you know, um, just to clarify um, how to just do some research on your own if you needed to. So you can type in the word Christian and the word Christian is only in the Bible twice, two times. All right. So now I want to go back to the word rose because I was looking at the songs of songs, chapter two, verse seven. And so in there it talks about rose. And so I'm going to go to songs two and seven songs of, that's songs of solomon actually and then so now you're going to look at this is strong's number six six four three it's actually zero six six four three because all strong's number usually have five numbers so um what we're going to do is denote the zero so we can just take off the zero and just say is strong's number six six four three and the word word rose means um it is Announce. it means in the sense of prominence splendor as conspicuous uh as a gazelle as beautiful glorious goodly pleasant um conspicuous is what i meant to say pleasant row or uh, roebuck right so that is strong's number six six four three so when we look at the songs of solomon or just call it songs of songs um it says Oh, ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose. So basically just say, okay, so by the splendor or, you know, by, by um, as beautiful or by your, the glorious, right? So that's the way that we're looking at that word. And so, and by the hinds of the field that ye stir not up nor awake my love till he please. And so what this is saying here, let's, I want him to go back to the NIV version. So, um. So it says, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelle, by basically by the splendor, right? And by the, the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And so I think that scripture has some very significant value. Just for instance, it says, do not arouse, do not arouse. Okay, so let's go back to the King James Version and see what it says. Um, in place of arouse so it says do not awake so let's look at the word awake here and i want to i want to look at this this way because i think it's important for us to pay attention to like the the key words here so we're going to go back to songs of solomon and um now we're going to look at the word awake and so the word awake it is pronounced or it is it is strong's number five seven eight two it is a primitive root. Um, it means basically the idea of opening the eyes to awake literally or figuratively, right? So we can use like a metaphor for this too when it says figuratively. Um, lift up self, master, raise up, raise, stir up self, right? So this is about awakening your yourself being awakened, right? So Let's read the the Bible verse again. I charge you, daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose. So basically by the splendor in the hinds of the field that ye not stir up nor awake. 
nor awake my love till it please. So what this is saying here is that God does not want us to arouse or um, awaken love until it desires, right? So we have to desire love. We have to desire the understanding of what love is. So many times I see people say, you know, love is pain. Love hurts. You know, they say love is... um, love love don't care i i mean it's so many different sayings that people have for love but what the real definition of love is we can find it in the bible so let's look at this scripture we're gonna look at first corinthians first corinthians 12 verses 4 through 9 okay i think that's it is it no that's the uh spiritual gifts First Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 7. So that is going to be love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. And so that's what love is. Um, So when you see this type of uh, love in the Bible, this is the love that God wants us to understand, right? And so love of the earth, the love of the flesh people don't really know what the love of god is so love being patient love is kind is not going to envy it is not going to boast right um it is not proud it is not going to dishonor others so love does nowhere it says right here that love is pain nowhere does it say here that love hurts it does not say that that love uh betray you right so when when a person says that they love you but they can betray you do they really love you so what's important hold on one second please Okay, so what's important to understand here is that when people say, well, you know, she betrayed me, but she said that she loved me. You know, she was going to be there. She knew I, or she knew I had to go to work and she was supposed to give me a ride to work. And so now you lost your job. Now, you know, you needed to borrow some money and then your family member was supposed to help you out and they didn't. So now you're behind on your bills because you were depending on them and see you have to understand that love is kind so love is patient it does not envy right love does not envy 
Um, it is not proud. So if someone says they're going to do something and then they don't, they just leave you out hanging. That, that means that that person care about you. That means that that is not considered love. So quit, quit comparing love to things that are not love. Um, for instance, I wanted to go to this scripture. Hold on one second. I need to pull this up. Okay, so this should be James 2. I'm going to go to um, James 2 really quick here. It says here, this is what I want to read. Uh, this is about faith and deeds. So your deeds is your works, is your actions. It could be your reactions too, right? Um. Let's go to James chapter 2, verse 14. It says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So, in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. But I'll read that verse on down because that's another point to this um scripture. So, if someone is your brother and sister and they need some clothes and food, and you just say, oh, okay, well, just be good. Go ahead, be well. You know, I wish you the best. But you don't do anything to help them. So it's like, okay, you was concerned about them, but you didn't do anything to help them. You physically did not provide them with any food. Like you could have went in your house and got food out of your house. You could have asked your neighbor or somebody, okay, do you need food? Do you have any food to give away so that I can give this person some food, right? If you don't have food, you can borrow the food is what I'm saying. So, going back to this scripture here in um, 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. Love is patient. So, love is actually going to be patient in a way where it's going to make sure that it could wait it's going to wait on you. It's going to, you know, um, be concerned about you. This is what love is. So if a person does these type of things, um, these are all the things that God wants. Okay. This is what love is. So I, I need to clarify. People keep on thinking that they're doing and they're not really doing. And so this is so important because I have a testimony actually to give um, 
And I'm not sure if it's like real or real testimony or if it's just something that I, I just would really like to share because um it's it's important, right? To maybe share this, right? Um, so I'm gonna look at the King James version of First Corinthians 13, verses four through seven. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in inequity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. And see, I, I really like verse 7 of the King James Bible because it's like, this love is something that God gives. God actually buried all things for us. God believeth all things that is possible, you know. And and, and it's, we, if we are going to be like God, because the Bible says that we should be like God, you are not God. You should be like God. So remember, you are not God, but you should be like God, right? And if you're going to imitate God, then you want to have his qualities of love, right? So bear it all things. Believe it all things are possible. That's what I believe. We have to believe it all things are possible. Hope it all things. Endure it all things. And so we can do this because we have love inside of us. So anything that's in contrary to this, if you hear people say, well, love is pain love hurts love did this to me or you know what love made me get you know emotionally numb you know love betrayed me so i don't have love you know and so when you hear those type of things it's in contrary to what god says in the bible it's, it's not what god says and so we want to make sure that we are practicing love in a way where we we can understand that God wants us to be patient. God wants us to not envy. God wants us to, you know, um not be puffed up. God doesn't want us to behave in an unseemly way, you know, when we're loving people. So if a person tell you that they they want to see you get to work, but they're not going to do anything to help you get to work. It's like, okay, it's like okay, where is your love at? Because love is patient. I want to go back to the King, the NIV version. So love is patient. Love is kind, right? It's not going to be envious of you. It's not going to covet after you. It is not going to boast like, oh, I did this and I did that for you, right? It's not going to be proud. It's not going to do any of those things. It's not going to dishonor other people. It's not going to be like, oh, okay, well, the only way I can help you is if you do this. Or the only way that I can do this for you is if you, if they're getting something in return. So love is selfless, right? It isn't selfish. So it is not easily angered to do things. And it keeps no record of wrong. So 
when the when the Bible tells us to forgive your neighbor seventy times seven, it reminds me of this scripture. It reminds me of love. So love is attached to forgiveness. A forgiveness is accompanied with love, right? When it says it keeps no record of wrongs. And I want to talk about this today because when we go and we look at eugenics, eugenics is something that is really an evil. It is a eugenics is um eugenics is something that is it is not good at all. It's not it is not good. And so for people to walk around supporting these type of ideologies you have to ask yourself like where where are they um how are they coming with this you know you have to ask yourself that how how are they coming because there is no way hold on one second let me i wanted to pull up this hmm. see i got all this stuff one second here. So you really just have to ask yourself, like, well, why, why is, it, why is it this way? You know. How can society be, how can individuals and society be that way? How? If God is full of love, right? How can, how can that, they, how can the world be this way? So basically eugenics is a pseudo-scientific inaccurate theory that humans can be improved through the selective breeding of populations. It is the misappropriation of methods uh, such as involuntary civilization, which is also called racial cleansing, segregation, and social exclusion that would sort of rid society of individuals that are deemed to be unfit in society. And so looking at the eugenics, uh, eugenics that, that is happening around the world, um specifically with underage children because remember what i said actually what i'm going to try to do I'm, I'm just going to post this here and show you all basically what the eugenics is and give you a definition of it here because it doesn't look like i provided a thorough definition so let me go ahead and provide the definition here So, okay, here we go. Let's see, should be able to get it there. All right, now. Okay, so I, I was able to get that there. Um, so eugenics is a pseudoscientific inaccurate theory that humans can be improved basically do selective breeding of population. So people that are, um, you know, deemed unfit 
are individuals that are not contributing to society. And and please understand that this is going to be a very explicit conversation going forward, okay? So, you know, disclaimers are in place for a reason. I just want you all to know that this uh, um, is going to be a sensitive discussion. So, if it is something that you are uncomfortable with listening to based upon you know, your understanding of what eugenics is or your prior knowledge to eugenics. I just want you all to know that this is going to be a sensitive type of conversation. All right. Um, so if you need to leave, go ahead and sign off now. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, but to those that can go ahead and stay and listen to this explicit conversation surrounding eugenics, it is something that is imperative pretty much for all of us to know about and to be aware of, okay? Because in some way or the other, we are all being impacted by eugenics either directly or indirectly, okay? So when you think of eugenics, I have provided, I don't know why it, it actually, it didn't even provide the link that I have here. So let me let me um go ahead and copy this link again. So Okay. All right. Okay, so basically the selective breeding of populations are individuals that are deemed unfit would be individuals that are um battling like mental health disorders mental um like genetic diseases um individuals that are uh mentally challenged right are suffering from some uh, mental challenges including individuals that are not contributing to society um they also include involuntary sterilization. So individuals who they want to depopulate, this has all been about eugenics, okay? So that is what eugenics is. It is a pseudoscientific inaccurate theory that humans can be improved through selective breeding of populations, okay? Um, it is the misappropriation of methods, it is the misappropriation of methods um, such as involuntary sterilization, also called racial cleansing. So um, as I read the other day on genome.gov and how the involuntary sterilization of, um, of a mentally challenged woman was done when she was 17 years old because her mom was a victim of rape and um so let's just go there really quick let's let's go to genome.gov and i'll just do like a, a recap here so Looks like they changed a lot here from the other day when I was on here. <laughs> okay. Um, 
So it talks about like here in, in 1883, how um, generations of uh, racial qualities of future generations were either physically or mentally. And so they wanted to sort of social and intellectually um, characterize those individuals by a concept of their race. Um, so this was so-called um, treating some people superior or inferior to other individuals and or groups. Um, and so this is sort of believed to be a biological behavior characteristics that were sort of fixated on um, unchangeable um, qualities in individuals and populations and, and nations. Um, so there is like there was a hierarchy system here when it started with eugenics. They wanted to be superior than others and other individuals would be inferior to them. And so we see that across the globe um, and around the 1920s, including Germany, the U.S., Great Britain, Italy, Mexico, many other countries where statisticians and economists, anthropologists, sociologists, uh, social reformers, geneticists, and all of these individuals, they sort of um, supported the Nazi German racial state between 1933 and 1945. So uh, about 400,000 people were victims and they culminated um, pretty much the destruction of the Jewish, the Jewish population. And so we have here, I actually wanted to read a more thorough explanation of what was going on with, with eugenics. So I don't know why they have changed the website, around, but they did. So just give me one moment to see if I could just pull it up. Okay, let's see. I don't think that that's it. It, okay hey now i did i found it um okay so i think that this was in 19 let's see maybe 1920 let me try to find it actually i'll just go through the list really quick it isn't that long um okay so looking at eugenics right starting back and let's i'll do like every few years so in 1905, you have this, um, there was a German biologist. And so his name was Alfred Plotz. And so basically what he called was, um, eugenics was considered racial hygiene and eugenics. That's what it was called. So basically what to focus on is, um, the Nazi propaganda, right? So for Nazi, uh, T4 euthanasia program, um, that, basically states that this hereditary defective cost the people co community 60,000 um, Reichsmarks for life. So compatriot, that's your money too. So in this picture that is here, if you go onto the zone, um, the, my zone, you will see the photo, right? And so it's basically saying that this is when eugenics began in society and they were like trying to polarize and publicize it. So they wanted everybody to know about eugenics in 1905. Basically was an ideology that, that was sponsored in 1883. And so now it's so prominent in society today with the transgender population. I, I'm hoping that I can transition into that conversation. And so now let's move forward. I'm going to skip ahead a few years. I'm not going to go through every um, bullet here, but I'm going to skip ahead. So let me go ahead to 1910. So 
1910, you have Davenport. Um, Davenport. I think that, yeah, this should be Iowa. Davenport, Iowa. Um, they basically establishes, but it doesn't say Iowa. Though. It just says Davenport started the eugenics record office in Cold uh, Spring Harbor in New York. Okay, so this must this was in New York. So I was associating Davenport with Iowa because I just been so many places. So um, basically, in 1910, you have this eugenics record office that was created in Cold Spring Harbor, and um, it basically it compiled information people across the United States and every everywhere, right, nationally for everybody that had feeble mindedness, that they had criminality, right, or alcoholism. So feeble mindedness is a way to say that individuals that had were suffering from uh mental challenges. So they had mental health issues, right? They could have been autistic or they could be suffering from cerebral palsy. That's what they're considering feeble mindedness and criminality and alcoholism. And so they they compiled all of this data like they were the Census Bureau and they wanted to basically gain information about individuals that were mentally challenged and had criminal um, criminality. So, you know, prison systems, they collected all of this data for them. People that were um, in mental hospitals suffering from maybe uh, alcoholism, something like that. So moving forward to about 1914 the eugenics organization expanded globally so they expounded on their eugenics um agenda um it it spread it uh within the united states hungary france italy argentina mexico um sesco la salvia um this was around the end of world war one now moving forward to about 1921 you have the second international eugenics congress is held in new york city all right, so this is where they supported the argument that immigrants were inferior and that their birth rates represented a threat to the Nordic races. So when you think of Nordic races, you have to encompass, this is going to be the, the dominant race. So the dominant race is the Caucasian race. And so according to the second International Eugenics of Congress out of New York, they were basically saying that the attendings that came from Europe, the United States, Central and South America, the immigration issues surrounding eugenics was that immigrants' birth rates were so high that they could have expanded or increased much larger than the, the dominant race in the United States. So this became an issue. And the reason why it became an issue is because now the immigrant immigration immigrants became a threat, right? This is in 1921. So they needed, they created the second eugenics of Congress. Um, moving forward to, uh, let's say 1924. So now you have in the early 20th century, you have the immigration with some of the like key political issues in the United States. And now they have the, alien anti-dumping bill and basically what this allowed eugenicists to do was they saw that these new non-nordic immigrants basically they wasn't the dominant race were um undesirable compared to the immigrants in northern europe and so they wanted to you know um 
they wanted immigration more from these northern European countries instead of other places where they were non-Nordic individuals. So going forward to 1927, now this is the one that I was just talking about, um, Buck v. Bell County. So in 1924, um, the Virginia Assembly passed the Unical Sterilization Act. And so what this did was they allowed a woman, well, the patient, she was 18 years old. She suffered from epilepsy and she was feeble-minded. So she had some artistic type of um, uh, capabilities. So it doesn't say specifically what mental challenge she was suffering from, but her mother had a history of prostitution. And so her mother was, had also been raped by a relative and, um, they wanted to sterilize this woman. So they actually was able to sterilize her. Um, it was a legal case in Buck versus Bell. Um, and it, they had an eight to one vote on this issue in the Supreme Court. And so basically, instead of waiting to execute degenerative, um, degenerate offsprings for the crime or to let them starve for their in, um or to basically consider them to be unfit, they sterilized them. All right. So moving forward in 1932, you have the third International Congress of Eugenics is held. So this is actually the third one. Okay. Now they had over a hundred different delegates that attended this. And um, it so by the 1930s, it was really prominent within the scientific community um and statisticians eugenics now instead of saying eugenics they're they're basically using genome okay so pay attention when you see something that says genome they are really reflecting on eugenics okay that is what it's about now it, it may not say eugenics don't be alarmed if it doesn't say eugenics be alarmed if it says genome Pay attention to some of these keyword indicators, all right? So, um, in 1939, we have the records office closed. Uh, so, the eugenics record office is closed after the uh, World War II in 1939. You have the politicians in Nazi Germany that advocated for and implemented these sort of eugenics policies. Um, so they wanted to force sterilization against Jews and also to persecute minorities. Um, and the way that they did this by forming different committees of scientists to sort of provide validity to eugenics. So what they did was they used the scientific method to support their ideologies of eugenics. Hold on one second here. I'm sorry about that. My cat is, she just, she wanted to get out. So, um, so eugenics, the record office closed in 1939, but we see that in Nazi Germany, in the, in the, um, somewhat throughout the 1930s, they were using researchers to support the agenda for eugenics so they use scientists 
to basically do research that was biased. So it's most likely biased research because that's what this is suggesting suggesting here. Um, because this is specifically what it says. Let's read it. It says it here. It says, um, throughout the 1930s, the U.S. population learned how scientists and politicians in Nazi Germany advocated for and implemented eugenics policies, such as forced sterilization against Jews and minorities. And that such practices were inspired by the policies in many U.S. states. So we see that it's happening in the United States. As these horrific realities become more known, eugenics became increasingly unpopular in the United States. In 1935, the Carnegie Institute of Washington assembled a committee of scientists to study the validity of the eugenics research supported by the Eugenics Records Office. See... They, they actually had a committee to study the validity of these eugenics. And so um, in 1939, the president of the Carnegie Institute cut funding to the eugenics record office, which led to its closing in December of that year. And so they ended up closing, right? Um, moving forward to 1945, we have the post-war some of uh, the eugenics here are really focusing on the eugenicist, I'm, I'm sorry, geneticist, where they are trying to reform um, a lot of eugenics-based approaches. And so now, instead of focusing on eugenics itself, they want to focus on the autonomy and individual choice of a uh, person genetics, right? So... They um, still are, they still consider the serious hereditary defects. That is what the um, pre-existing genetic diseases and stuff like that. So those hereditary diseases, um, such as like Parkinson's, Huntington's, Korea, those type of diseases. And so in some cases, involuntarily sterilization um, could, if they resisted social press pressure to not have children. So they wanted to make sure that they were able to involuntarily sterilize people if they had hereditary diseases. So they wanted to recommend sterilization and try to get them sterilized from stop them from having kids because they have genetic diseases. Um, moving in 1983, you have Oregon is basically the last state to repeal is sterilization law this is in um 1979 okay so this this isn't that long ago all right so it's about twenty thousand people in the state of california that has been sterilized um and so oregon they had repealed its eugenical sterilization act in 1974 and it was due to basically twenty thousand or more people that have been sterilized in the state of california there were about 26, 2,700 people that were sterilized in Oregon. And, you know, keep in mind, this is just information that is made available. We don't know what is not. What We, we, we still have X of the unknown. What is the unknown? X is the unknown. Okay. 
So you don't know. This is information that is readily available for us. So now shifting forward into 1994, which this is definitely CRISPR-Cas9 systems did not start in 1994, but this is what the National Human Genome Research Institute would like to provide to people. Um, but CRISPR-Cas9 came out way before 1994 okay this isn't this isn't just groundbreaking technology this is technology that has been out for decades all right um and so it talks about the human um genome and how the human genome research institute will be working with the human genome project okay um to basically provide some scientific evidence and stuff in support of uh, monitoring the presence and confronting inaccuracies about the issue concerning eugenics now remember what i said don't forget instead of using the term eugenics they use the term genome okay and so that's something to consider now how does all of this play into effect with the how does it how does this influence the current population of people well we this is a serious discussion it's a very explicit type of conversation because you have to understand that right now history is allowing history has paved the way eugenics and the human genome to be impacted and so now you have these uh children that can be mutilated at because it well we're we're not going to just call it mutilation so let's look at some of the things that are going on um let me go ahead and move forward i wanted to look at this video well i showed that video the other day so you can go back through the podcast and see the video so i want to um look at margaret sanger here But I also want to look at her video. So give me one second. Okay, so I, I guess I could play this. I played this the other day. So I'll, I'll just play it again. It's okay. It's only a couple minutes long. So let's see. Um, let's look here. How did eugenics erase black history? I'm going to read the introduction of the book. Well, I don't want to look at that one. By Edwin Black. Respect. All right. So I know many of you watching are skeptical of what I'm saying. However, just like you, I want to know how. So this is how eugenics erased black history. Um, so I clicked on how did they do it? That said 37 minutes and 32 seconds. The actual books were rewritten and altered with new pictures, how the paintings were hidden, recreated or overpainted, and how photos were replaced or altered to remove all traces of people of color from history. As I was finalizing this video, I was thinking to myself, the cover up is vast. However, I have so far emphasized more of the why, but not necessarily the how. So I have inserted this section to address the issue of how history was whitewashed. All right, so I really hope I haven't lost you. 
If you need a break, please pause the video, take a break, and come on back. All right, so if you took a break, welcome back. If not, here we go. So I've already told you who some of the major players are that were identified in the book. The financiers, the politicians, doctors, directors of institutions, university presidents, and faculty. Of course, these are the main figures, yet it doesn't account for and name the lower level, everyday federal, state, and local employees that actually did the work involved in carrying out this horrible lie. Not to mention the hundreds of American citizens and citizens of foreign countries that volunteered to assist in this hoax. They actually believed in negative eugenics, white superiority, and domination. Or I'm sure in some cases they took part in it for the money and power that came along with collaboration. First, I believe there are four main scenarios that provide for the opportunity to pull off this sort of big lie. And those four would be one, act of God, two, pure accidents, three, fraudulent accidents, and four, war. Now there may be more, but these are the ones that I've read about. So what do I mean by act of God? What I mean are things that happen naturally like fires, floods, tornadoes, earthquakes, hurricanes, etc. All these situations can occur without people's intervention. Then burning and it gets knocked over or maybe a water pipe that bursts in a building all right so for number three i had fraudulent accidents these are situations that are intentionally done to destroy property or cause fear these are strategically planned events an example would be setting a fire in a building by doing so it removes any trace of the original one-of-a-kind documents paintings books journals carvings movies etc all right in fourth position on the list i have wars during wars, people, buildings, statues, museums, archives get destroyed as collateral damage or often on purpose. This is often a military strategy to demoralize a population by destroying cultural and historical icons and landmarks and replace them with the invading army's culture and values. What I'm going to show you now is how these wealthy individuals and these philanthropic organizations use their money and influence to spread the eugenic ideology within the United States and around the world. By doing so, they were able to appropriate the world's real history with their own version of whitewashed history. Now I'm going to have to condense this down so it won't be hours long. However, I will be creating a video to go more in depth on this topic. But for now, I'm just gonna give you enough to show you how it happened. As I mentioned previously, there are four scenarios where a society or culture would have to recreate its history. The first two, act of God and pure accidents, are viable scenarios that have occurred throughout history. Although one can take advantage of these two situations, I'm choosing not to focus on them for now. All right, so let me start with the third scenario. I named it fraudulent accidents. There have been many of these occurrences in American and European history. They mainly take the form of setting fire to buildings such as archives, libraries, museums, churches, or homes. Unfortunately, setting fire to a structure is easy and very inexpensive. It often has a desired effect of destroying much, if not all of the contents within the structure. Once the contents in the building have been consumed by fire and destroyed, it is gone forever. If these items were one-of-a-kind originals like paintings, books, manuscripts, carvings, clothing, then they are lost for all time. If the items destroyed were able to be copied, like books for instance, then the information would still exist. Unfortunately, in the past, there were many important one-of-a-kind books. As you can imagine, this creates the perfect opportunity for whoever is in power to replace the items with whatever version they want. For instance, paintings can be recreated to reflect someone in the same pose, style of clothing, etc., but then be an entirely different person. Books can be recreated with the same stories, but with new engravings, pictures, and photos. Paintings that survived a fire 
and where just smoke damage can be overpainted. Overpainting was common in the past. What has also occurred over time is eugenics educators have convinced their students that certain words don't mean what they originally meant, like dark complexion, brown complexion, and brunette, or phrases like tall, dark, and handsome. Please understand that just about anything can be recreated by master craftsmen, publishers, painters, etc. This is what I'm suggesting happened. During times of chaos and confusion, like during the fog of war, where communities are being destroyed, many things can be accomplished, good or bad. So let's look at some of the places that were destroyed by fire in the United States. The first one I'd like to look at is the Library of Congress, which was destroyed by fire on October 8, 1814. According to the LOC.gov website, which is the Library of Congress website, the library was destroyed along with the Capitol building stemming from the War of 1812. The British Army destroyed several buildings, the White House, the U.S. Treasury, U.S. Patent Office, and the National Intelligencer newspaper. After the fire, Thomas Jefferson offered to sell his private collection of over 6,000 books to replace the books that were lost, and eventually Congress purchased them. There is also a mystery surrounding the original collection of books and if they were actually saved or not. That said, I'm sure you can imagine that many one-of-a-kind items were destroyed, never to be replaced. I'm not as concerned with the first burning of the Library of Congress because, in my opinion, white supremacy had no major political power at that time and historical whitewashing had not taken place yet in the United States. Alright, so moving along. According to Accessible... Well, I like the way that he said that, but I would also like to add that, you know, um, Jefferson did receive money from the Library of Congress for selling his book. So that was a convenient way, you know, to get his book sold, you know, for probably top price. Probably at a high rate, extremely high rate. Archives.com. In 1851, the Library of Congress was again ravaged by fire. 35,000 out of 55,000 books were destroyed. Paintings, busts, manuscripts, letters, very valuable information was lost. Yet again, Congress had to appropriate funds to build a new collection. In my opinion, with each destructive fire comes the opportunity to change information or hide it like it never happened. Keep in mind, the people that were eyewitnesses to the historical events that were written about were generally dead years prior to the publishing of the text. So essentially, there is no one to protest if the recreated books have incorrect or misleading information. Here's an example for you. Four valuable busts were destroyed in the second Library of Congress fire. They were likenesses of Washington, Jefferson, Lafayette, and General Taylor, all of whom had died years before. Now I'm suggesting when the bus got recreated, they were changed to look like the person that commissioned them wanted them to look like. Alright, so take a look at this coin. It is the Indian Head Cent. According to Wikipedia.com, it was created by James Barton Longacre. He was an American portraitist and engraver, and the fourth chief engineer of the United States Mint from 1844 until his death. Longacre is best known for his design of the Indian Head Cent, which entered commerce in 1859, and for the design of the Shield Nickel Flying Eagle Cent and other coins of the mid-19th century. Reading from a paragraph from the website U.S. Coins and Jewelry, it reads, As we mentioned, this Indian head portrait, not a Native American profile, but apparently modeled after James Barton Longacre's daughter, Sarah, it is rumored that she was at the Mint visiting her father when she tried on the Indian headdress of Sitting Bull. Her father saw her and sketched her, hence the image of the averse side of the coin was born. Of course, everyone knows Longacre's daughter did not represent what an Indian looked like. However, that's what was deemed acceptable by those in charge of the national treasury. My point here 
showing a misrepresentation of an American Indian on a national coin utilizing a young white girl was perfectly fine. This actually goes a long way in proving my point that if misrepresenting an entire group of people was okay for national circulated coins, then it should not be far-fetched to believe and understand that it occurred with many important people in our history books. Okay, so I spent a lot of time talking about these two fires at the Library of Congress. Let me tell you about some others within the United States and Europe. Remember, this is not a complete list. All right, so in 1865, the library on the University of Alabama's campus was destroyed, burning 7,000 volumes. In 1879, the Birmingham Central Library was destroyed by fire. 49,000 books were burned. In 1895, the University of Virginia Library at Charlottesville, Virginia was burned. Only 20% of the books and special collections survived. Then in 1911, the New York State Library burned. And in 1986, the Central Library caught fire. 400,000 books were destroyed. Also, keep in mind, whatever adorned the walls of these libraries, like paintings, for instance, were also destroyed. Now, moving over to Europe, fires destroyed the Mosque Library in Bulgaria in 1877. In 1914, the Library of the Catholic University in Belgium. In 1922, the Public Records Office in Dublin, Ireland. In 1931, several religious libraries in Madrid, Spain. In 1933, the Institute of Sexology in Berlin, Germany. In 1941, the National Library of Serbia in Belgrade. Also in 1941, the British National Central Library was seriously damaged from an air raid. In 1943, the SS Cyril and Methodist National Library in Bulgaria. In 1944, the National Library of Poland, the Warsaw University Library, and the Warsaw Public Library, along with the Central Archives of Historical Records in Warsaw. Again, please keep in mind, this is totally not a complete list, just a small sample. According to a paper written in 2015, United Kingdom Libraries During World War II, by Matthew Levitt, MLIS, Brigham Young University, he stated, the British knew that their libraries would be targeted for destruction. So they purposely moved many thousands of books to safer locations. Okay, I'm gonna stop there, and then I want to go to the towards the end of the video. Okay, I'm going to wrap up this video very soon. I just wanted to cover a few more topics to really bring it home. I want to show you how eugenics was able to flourish and become the basis for changing the United States going forward from this time period. All right, on to page 112. It states. In 1912, shortly before the Eugenics Record Office installed its Board of Scientific Directors, the New York State Legislature had created the Rockefeller Foundation, which boasted fabulous assets. John D. Rockefeller donated $35 million the first year and $65 million more the next year. Shy and intensely private, the oil heir seemed to enjoy corresponding with Davenport about sundry eugenic topics. On January 27, 1912, using his personal 26 Broadway stationery, the young Rockefeller wrote Davenport a letter about a plan to incarcerate feeble-minded criminal women for an extra length of time so they would, quote, be kept from perpetuating their kind until after the period of childbearing had been passed. Then it goes on to say, big money made all the difference for eugenics. Indeed, biological supremacy, raceology, and the coercive eugenic battle plans were just... Okay, so I would like to screenshot this. Let me just screenshot this here. No, okay. talk until those ideas married into American affluence. With that affluence came the means and the connections to make eugenic theory an administrative reality. Mrs. Harriman, 
the railroad heiress, wielded great power. When she made a request to New York State officials, it was difficult for them to say no. Davenport's proposed county surveys in search of the unfit, for example, were implemented by state officials. Eugenic agencies were established, often bearing innocuous names. Robert Hebbard, Secretary of the State of New York State Board of Charities, reported to Mrs. Harriman that, quote, our Eugenics Bureau is known officially as the Bureau of Analysis and Investigation, end quote. In describing the agency's work, Hebert's letter reflected the usual eugenic parlance. The study of groups of defective individuals is so closely related to the welfare of future generations that the lessons drawn from the histories of normal families can prevent the continuance of conditions which foster social evils, end quote. He added that, to this end, the records of some 300,000 people had already been tabulated in 24 of New York State's counties. Hebert promised to coordinate his agency's work with privately financed eugenic field surveys. In Rock County, under your direction, he deferentially added, permit me to say that it is gratifying to know your deep interest in this branch of work of the State Board of Charities. Another such agency was organized that became known as the National Committee on Prison and Prison Labor, first organized in 1910 by the New York State Department of Labor to investigate the exploitation of convict manufactured goods. Four years later, the body changed its name amid a widening of its activities. Judge Olson, the stalwart eugenic activist who also directed the Municipal Court of Chicago Psychopathic Laboratory, steered his colleagues on the prison committee to create similar municipal psychopathic labs to document hereditary criminality in their cities. The New York Police Department did indeed establish a psychopathic laboratory for eugenic investigations, utilizing eugenics record office field workers supplied by Mrs. Harriman. Davenport himself headed up the prison's group's special committee on eugenics, which was established, quote, at the hereditary factors and antisocial behavior with the aid of a careful or a year-long joint project with the eugenics record office. Okay, so I like to just say that we see that there is a huge problem with eugenics and how eugenics is really just continuing to flourish in society so let's um i'm gonna play a couple more minutes here and then i'm gonna move forward page 115 there was no way for the public to know if a seemingly unrelated government agency was actively pursuing a eugenic agenda the United States Department of Agriculture maintained an active role in America's eugenic movement by virtue of its quasi-official domination of the American Breeders Association. Various Department of Agriculture officials either sponsored or officially encouraged eugenic research. Agriculture department meetings went beyond the bounds of simple agronomy. They often encompassed human breeding as well. On November 14, 1912, Professor C.L. Goodrich at the Washington office of the Department of Agriculture was asked by a colleague in the USDA's Columbia, South Carolina office whether two Negro siblings, both with six fingers on each hand, should be brought to the ABA meeting at the National Corn Exposition for eugenic evaluation. Professor Goodrich, who controlled the presentations of the ABA's eugenic section, replied a few days later, Have the children brought. I will put them on the program for a paper before the eugenics section. Then it goes on to say on January 3rd, 1913, Davenport wrote George W. Corr at the USDA in Washington asking, quote, If not too late, please add two titles to the eugenics program. One of these would be Davenport's own entry, 
quote, a biologist view of the Southern Negro problem, end quote. Mm -hmm. And moving on further the down, Southern. it says, Secretary of Agriculture James Wilson doubled as president of the ABA. At the group's 1913 convention, he rallied the forces. In his presidential address, Wilson declared, quote, you have developed in your eugenics section a great experiment station of research with a splendid building called the eugenics record office the heredity that runs mm -hmm. assembling the genetic data of thousands of families making records of the very souls of our people of the very life essence of our racial blood those families which have in them degenerate blood will have no reason for more slowly increasing the time those families in whose veins runs the blood of royalty will have added reason for the pride which will induce them to multiply their kind end quote Please keep in mind, folks, President Wilson ran this country for eight years, and this is the kind of thought process he had. So, yeah, scary. And yeah. trust me, folks, he wasn't sitting on his hands those eight years. He was busy furthering his agenda, making sure the right, or should I say the white families, were multiplying. All right, so moving on. On January 3rd, 1913, former President Theodore Roosevelt wrote Davenport, quote, I agree with you that society has no business to permit degenerates to reproduce their kind. Someday we will realize that the prime duty, the inescapable duty of the good citizen of the right type is to leave his or her blood behind in the world and that we have no business to permit the perpetuation of citizens of the wrong type, end quote. See, I'm sure you all thought Teddy was a great guy, but yeah, this is what he was thinking. It's just like many things we don't cover in our education. Unfortunately, our history has been written to glorify our leaders regardless of what they thought or did. And what happens is we end up scratching our heads after we've had our history lessons, mm -hmm. wondering, hmm, if everything was so great, how do we end up the way we are now? Now, some of you watching this would say, well, hey, there's nothing wrong with this country. Everything's perfect. Well, that's because you're probably of the privileged class. For many of us, that's not the case. Right, so moving on to the book, it says, Dr. Ada Compton. President of Radcliffe College declared publicly, quote, eugenics is the greatest concern of the human race. The development of civilization pronounced his belief, quote, had Jesus been among us, he would have been president of the first eugenic congress. Page 118. Right, lastly on page 118 it states, while many of America's elite exalted eugenics, the original Galtonian eugenicists in Britain were horrified by the sham science they saw thriving in the United States and taking root in their own country. In a merciless 1913 scientific paper written on behalf of the Galton Laboratory, British scientist David Heron publicly excoriated the American eugenics of Davenport in the eugenics record office. Using the harshest possible language, Heron warned against, quote, certain reasons, but the teaching of which we hold to be fallacious and indeed actually dangerous to social welfare, end quote. His accusations, quote, careless presentation of data, inaccurate methods of analysis, irresponsible expression of conclusions, and rapid change of opinion. Okay, so what I would like to say about this, this one right here is just basically showing how eugenics is being influenced through the scientific method with you with researchers being the one that are presenting careless presentation of data inaccurate methods of analysis irresponsible expression of conclusions and rapid change of opinion end quote Heron lamented further when we 
message teaching based on of theories and on the most superficial inquiries proclaimed in the name of eugenics and spoken of as entirely feel that it's not possible to use criticism too harsh nor words too strong in repudiation of it all right so basically to summarize the last paragraph there were british eugenicists that believed in the original theory of galtonian eugenics but they wholeheartedly disagreed the non-scientific methods used to derive the bogus theories and conclusions american eugenicists were teaching and using to demonize people finally on page 120 it reads millions of mrs harriman relic of the great railroad promoter assisted by other millions of rockefeller and carnegie are to be devoted to sterilization of several hundred thousands of american defectives annually as a matter of eugenics all of the millions of our plutocracies of whole states override constant and railroad innocent murder or lesser crimes and if we submit to such things not just to them all right so i wanted to bring this information to your attention so you can see and understand what's going on in the united states and abroad to shape our society what is truly sad is you would never get this vital information in any of our educational institutions why because they are still espousing this nonsense it has infiltrated and influenced all of our institutions as you heard in this video, this information was taught in schools. Our grandparents were presented with this junk science and philosophy in their classrooms, in their homes, via textbooks, magazines, newspapers, and journals. It was often legitimized and promoted by presidents, the military, congressional members, governors, and state and local governments. The information was taught via university and high school curriculum and virtually spread by anyone that felt like they wanted to bully others. There is so much more information in this book, as I mentioned, it's over 600 pages. This book is very accessible. I utilize the Kindle version for this video. If you want an even deeper understanding, I recommend you get this book. I really wanted to go more in depth with the information. However, I didn't want to lose you. My main goal was to break this information down like a police investigation. Any basic investigation will reveal who, what, when, where, and how something happened. So what I did was show you who was responsible for our rewritten history, what they did to accomplish the task, when it came to fruition, where it was taught worldwide, and how it was spread and used to manipulate not only the United States, but the world as we know it today. As I mentioned earlier in the video, the information in this book was carefully documented. I would dare say there were approximately 100 pages in the back of this book dated to where this information was sourced. There are also several pages of interesting photos. Do me a favor, folks, please comment and let me know what you think. Also, please stay tuned for my next video. Hopefully it won't take as long to... Okay, so that was an interesting discussion on eugenics right um and how eugenics has erased black history in a lot of different parts of history um so moving forward from that video you all can go back and analyze it more in depth if you like it, that video is almost two hours long okay um but i would like to just go forward and discuss some more um some other things about it here so i did go ahead and and take a screenshot i would like to post let me see if i could get it up here okay give me one second here please okay 
Oh, my computer, my computer. Okay. So, we see that, um, let me try to minimize this. It's not letting me post it right now. I'm trying to. So, we see that eugenics has a great deal of um, trying to involuntary sterilize people. So, when you think of what is happening around the world today within the transgender population and how it has become legal for minors to sort of have um, sex changes... When they have these sex changes, they are sometimes irreversible and they go through a lot of different complications when they're detransitioning back to their original biological self. So they sort of transition into the opposite sex or whatever sex they're of their choice. And when they transition that way, they are actually contributing to eugenics. This is a part of selective breeding. This is no longer involuntary sterilization. It is considered voluntary sterilization. And so we, we all understand and know that eugenics has been sponsored off of the notion of involuntary sterilization. The misappropriation of methods to create these sort of racial cleansing, segregation, and um, social exclusion of individuals. And society that they feel is unfit. So when we take a look at all of the true transition or have attempted to detransition, we can see that it has not worked for them. It has not worked um, in, in so many cases where you see that individuals are really going through a lot of pain and struggle to detransition back to their original self. Their biological or physiological traits um, are not extinguished, right? But... You have individuals who have continued to try to get rid of this transition that they made. And so I wanted to look at some of that stuff here, too. So let's look at that. Um, okay, so I was able to post it. Okay, so I want to look at how uh, transitions... Transitions with children. Transitions uh, with children. With I'm gonna say L, with transgender populations. So here is a Pew Research study. It says the challenges and hopes of transgender non um US adults. Okay. Um so this is adults here. This is this is for adults. I wasn't looking for adults. I'm looking for 
um, the transitioning process. Okay, so we see here what we need to know in equality. What does the scholarly research say about the effect of gender transition on transgender well-being? So now I want to make sure that this is pointed out. There are a lot of researchers that are supporting biased research because their motivations are being sponsored financially. So we really have to pay attention here. We see that this is what has happened on the rise of eugenics. Scientists were shaping story of basically coercing uh, eugenics, right? Coercing research methods do their biases. So basically, um, this this uh, article here is from Cornell University. Um, it talks about the effect of gender transition on transgender well-being. Um, so this, basically, the overview, um, let's look at some of their research findings. So the their research findings was basically, it was a peer review article published in uh, between 1991 and 2017 that's focused on the assessment of gender transition on transgender well-beings. So they identified 55 different studies that basically um, was about 93% found that gender transition improves the overall well-being of transgender people, um, while 4 uh, or 7% report mixed or, or no findings. And so they found no studies that concluded that gender transition causes overall harm and added resource. Um, so they separated, we separately included 17 additional studies that consist of literature reviews and practitioner guidelines. Okay, here we go. So as you can see, um, this article from Cornell University specifically is talking about what transition of transgender people not being harmed so they, they it has no harmful effects on them at all and so this is really amazing to me because there are quite a few questions that are being raised here and i like to let me just i'm gonna i'm gonna share this article and i'm gonna put a couple couple questions here because it's raising some questions with me because I'm just like okay so if if there is no harm so has there not been any complications during surgery for any transition surgeries right because that can cause harm which that isn't being mentioned here another thing is on um, what about the emotional um the emotional readjustment that a uh, individual will have to endure um, during their transition. And so that's something that is not being discussed here either. Um, then we have, we basically have all of these questions um, that doesn't seem like they're being answered. But our only thing they can report is 93% of gender transition improves their well-being. So this article 
is going to support any ideology that supports the transition of transgender people. And so this is the problem. The problem is with researchers. Okay. I'm going to say it again. The problem starts with researchers. The problem starts with research. The problem starts with research. This is where the problem starts. So researchers are able to create a narrative in order to provide people with data to be able to go out here and implement certain policies in order to be able to pass certain bills and laws into legislation, right? Research, researchers, scientists, researchers, physicians. So what's really, really important here is to be able to analyze if researchers are able to be as objective as they can during the research process. And so many of them are not. Okay, and, and many of them, their motivation is inspired in the wrong way. In order to pay attention to what is happening around the world, go look up a law. And then go look up research data associated with it. So first, it starts with the research. Once the research is published or the research is out there, now you can get funding for that research. Now you can get a, a laws change for that research to go into effect. So it actually starts with researchers. It starts with research. So as you see here, um, like on the last video, he talked about all of the eradication of these libraries, right? Um, now we're looking here when it when it talks about the trans trans transgender people improving. It improves, and um, seven percent of people have no harm, while ninety three percent improve their overall well being. So if this is the case, they're missing out on what the transgender detransition is about. So, you know, um, when researchers are focusing more on the agenda for, for the bills that are being passed, we need to pay very close attention to that. Society needs to pay attention to that. So I'm going to um, share this link so that everyone can see it. One moment here. It seemed like there is never enough time um, when I'm doing the, these podcasts. So, okay. So now moving a little bit forward here. Let's see. I wanted to talk about. Um, wait a moment. Okay. All right, so 
Okay. Alright, here we go. Oh, my computer is just so slow. Um, but that's okay. So now looking here, um, let's look at some of the history of what we see with Planned Parenthood. And I want to pull up this video about Margaret Sanger before I read the actual video. I mean, before I uh, read the actual history of Planned Parenthood. So I'm going to show this video of Margaret Sanger. She is the founder of Planned Parenthood and also the Negro Project. Okay. Okay, so here we go. This is about a minute and 30 seconds. So it says, did Planned Parenthood founder decry Slavs, Jews, and Blacks as weeds? So the founder, she, she called, she just disrespectful to Jews and Blacks and other people. It says false. Conservative commentator, hold on a second, I want to read the whole thing. Conservative commentator Candace Owens tweeted, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, was an evil genius. She said that she hoped to, okay, so this is blurry, exterminate blacks like weeds and so began educating us about choice. She is the author of Voluntary Genocide, 15 Million Black Deaths Later, and liberals still defend her dream, said. That Margaret Sanger hoped to exterminate Blacks like weeds. This meme also made a similar claim. Margaret Sanger... I cannot see what that says unless they make it a little more clear. Sanger was supposed to have written these words. Birth Control Review in April of 1933. However, she was not credited or mentioned in any of the pages. In 1923, Sanger did use the word weeds in a somewhat similar manner. Apostle of birth control sees cause gaining here. However, she did not attach it to a race or ethnicity. Succinctly and with telling brevity with and precision, the phrase birth control summed up our whole philosophy margaret sanger the new york times april 8th 1923 birth control is not contraception 
Oh, hold on, I gotta go back so I can read it. Birth control is not contraception indiscriminately and thoughtlessly practiced. It means the release and cultivation of the better racial elements in our society. That's better racial elements in our society. And the gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual extirpation of defective stocks. Those human weeds which threaten the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization. Arthur John George wrote of those words in 1992. Evidently concocted in the late 1980s for the purpose of trying to make the early birth control advocate seem a racist. John George, 1992. And this fabrication has been kept in circulation by anti-abortion and anti-birth control groups. Margaret Sanger's vocal support, support of women's reproductive agency was deeply controversial. She is widely credited as a galvanizing force in women's health care. So that's something about um, Margaret Sanger. So I, I wanted to look at another video, but it doesn't look like I have enough time. Um, but I would like to go ahead and read this um, article that was actually made about Margaret. Um, so let's look here. Okay. So we're going to talk about Margaret Sanger here. So let me just read part of this article and then I'll close tonight and I'll just pick it back up on Sunday. So there is only one thing that I would like to be in touch with, and that is the Negro Project. So this was written by Dr. C.J. Gamble, December 10th of 1939. Um, this is page two. So I'm going to start over. This there, there is only one thing that I would like to be in, in touch with, and that is the Negro Project of the South, which if the execution of the details remain in Miss Rose's hand, my suggestions will not be confusing because she knows the way my mind works. Miss Rose, send me a copy of your letter of December 5th, and I note that you doubt it worthwhile it to employ a full-time Negro physician. It seems to me from my experience where I have been in North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, and Texas, that while the colored Negroes have great respect for white doctors, they can get closer to their own members and more or less lay their own cards on the table, which means their ignorance, superstitions, and doubts. They do not do this with the white people. And if we can train the Negro doctor at the clinic, 
he can go among them with enthusiasm and with knowledge, which I believe will have far-reaching results among the colored people. His work, in my opinion, in the, in the nurses, hospitals, social workers, as well as the county's white doctors, his success will depend upon his personality and his training by us. The minister's work is also important and also um, he should be trained perhaps by the federation as to our, our ideals and the goal that we hope to reach. We do not want um, word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population and, and um, the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. So I agree with you that Miss Rose has done a remarkable job in thinking through and planning the project, but she has worked on it for, for some time. And so um, this is a wide discussion with Planned Parenthood across the country um, when, it, when it comes to Margaret Sanger. She was a racist that wanted to exterminate Blacks, Jews, Hebrews, and Latin, um, Latin ex communities uh, members. Um, she wanted to do this through eugenics and so now when we look at our um the population of people now and the transgender population of children this is something that is really really sad in this country it's no longer involuntary sterilization it is in fact voluntary sterilization and so i'll continue this discussion on sunday please be sure to join me and share 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 um the blog at suddenchangescorporation.org I really do appreciate you guys for joining me today. Let me go ahead and pray. Uh, Father God, I thank you so much for allowing me to deliver your word today. I pray that I planted and watered the seeds of your word in the lives of everyone that was listening. God, I ask that you just please allow us to take part in your plan, will, and purpose. Allow us to be positioned exactly what we need to be so that we can influence those people that are in power or those that are around us in a way that they will be influenced by your Holy Spirit, God. Allow your Holy Spirit to be so great inside of us that it is greater than any other spirit in this world. Thank you, God, that the Holy Spirit is greater inside of us than any spirit that is in this world. And so, God, we just thank you right now that you allow your word to continue to manifest itself in our lives and that you continue to allow us to walk in righteousness, Father God. Keep our hearts convicted for any and everything that displeases you. Uproot it up out of us, God, and allow us to have all of the seeds replaced.